When I became a Christian my first year in college, there were these two women who would come to my dorm room and visit me and go through the Bible with me. It was for discipleship. For a quiet and reserved 18-year-old, it was a bit overwhelming to have two people I barely knew show up, read stuff, and ask me questions about it. But I said yes to it because, as a Christian, I was supposed to get together with other Christians to learn about the Bible, right? It was there where I got my first in-depth explanation of the idea of witness, or in other words, spreading the word to other people about Christ. Matthew 28:19 says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This passage is known as the Great Commission. So this was something that I believed I was supposed to do. And if I wasn't doing that, I wasn't fulfilling my Christian duty. And if those who weren't Christian died and went to hell, their blood would be on my hands. So that belief led to a lot of awkward situations with a lot of people over the next few years, some of which I now regret. I didn't have it in me to be a corner preacher or anything like that, but everyone who knew me knew I was an evangelical Christian. And there were weird conversations with a lot of people, and it didn't win me a lot of friends. And I'm sure it didn't help that at that time, I thought that I could be the difference between eternal life with God and perpetually burning in a lake of fire. There were also missions trips. My family wasn't made of money, and I was too introverted and uncomfortable trying to sell people on something to fundraise. Hell, I even had a hard time selling Girl Scout cookies, and those taste really good. So I didn't do any missions trips outside the country. I remember doing an urban missions trip in Cleveland, helping out a church in a poor East Cleveland community, but that was about it. I was familiar with missions, though. My first year roommate was an MK, missionary's kid, who had spent a chunk of her childhood living in Africa. We had campus ministry staff leaders who had been on international missions, and some of my college friends have gone on missions trips themselves. My younger brother, who's more outgoing than I am, did a missions trip to Jamaica a few years ago. So I haven't experienced a foreign mission, but I have heard a lot about missions, and from everything I've heard, the feedback has been that it's challenging yet positive. There is some powerful messaging from the evangelical tradition that revolves around conversion. It makes sense. It's even in the name, evangelical, evangelizing, sharing the good news. And within that tradition, evangelizing or witnessing or attempting to convert someone to Christianity is not optional. And in the minds of evangelicals, the stakes are quite high. The difference between eternal life and eternal death. That messaging was powerful enough to send 26-year-old American missionary John Allen Chow to a remote island off the coast of India and to his death. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Pastor Podcast. There was a time when evangelicals were known for something other than the fact 
that 81% of their white believers voted for Donald Trump. Evangelical Christians were once known for their passion and zeal for conversion. Spreading the gospel, witnessing the others, evangelizing, is in the name. And there was something that set them apart, a drive to make disciples of all nations. That was what led 26-year-old John Chow, a native of Vancouver, Washington, to the coast of India to the Sentinel Islands. The mission he set out for himself was to achieve contact with the Sentinelese tribe, an isolated people group native to North Sentinel Island. He arrived at the Andaman Islands off the coast of India October 16th, and on November 14th, bribed fishermen to get him to North Sentinel Island by boat at night. He visited North Sentinel Island three times over a three-day period before fishermen reported that he was dead on the island. The Indian government has no immediate plans to retrieve Chow's body. The story has provoked a lot of outrage, some against the Sentinelese for killing an American missionary who just wanted to proselytize to them, some against Chow for trespassing on the island of this isolated tribe that made it clear he was not welcome. There is even some consternation and mixed feelings among evangelicals, despite the fact that dedication to the importance of missions is a big part of what differentiates them from other groups of Christians. So, before I weigh in on this with my thoughts, I want to provide some context to this deadly encounter between the Sentinelese people and American explorer and missionary John Allen Chow. I want to start with the Sentinelese people. The name Sentinelese is an exonym. It's a name that we've given them in English, but it isn't the name they call themselves. But because they are an isolated people group, there is no way for us to know what name they prefer to go by. So we'll use the exonym for now. The Sentinelese people are the inhabitants of North Sentinel Island, an island that's part of the Sentinel Island or Andaman Island chain. It is believed they migrated to the island from Africa and they've existed there for an estimated 30,000 years. Their population is estimated as being somewhere between 40 and 500 people, and the Sentinelese people sustain themselves through hunting and gathering. There are other tribes in the Andaman Island chain, but the Sentinelese are set apart by their isolation and apparent hostility to outsiders. And there's a reason for that. Great Britain had direct rule of India, from 1858 through 1947. This period is called the British Raj, or crown rule in India. During this period, India was a colony of the United Kingdom, and this not only included modern-day India, but what is now Pakistan and Bangladesh. The crown continued the colonization of the country that was first started earlier by the British East India Company. The crown also controlled their foreign policy and brought in Anglican missionaries in order to convert Indians to Christianity, educate them, teach them how to be, in their words, civilized. During this period, and even after Indian independence, the multitude of tribes native to the Andaman Islands were contacted by Europeans and later mainland Indians. These Andaman tribes largely died off due to disease they lacked immunity to, and the members who were left were largely exploited, becoming sickly, poor, and in some cases addicted to opiates. If you know anything about the history of British colonization of the Americas, 
the story of Native Americans is pretty similar. M.V. Portman, a British officer in charge of the Andamanese. Yes, that was his title, officer in charge of the Andamanese. Portman organized an expedition to North Sentinel Island to learn about the Sentinelese tribe just months after making it to his post in the Andaman Islands. North Sentinel Island is set apart from the others that are part of the island chain, and it's a bit difficult to get to, which is why it wasn't and still isn't being taken over by colonial interests like the other islands were. When Portman and his crew made it to the island, the tribe scattered. Portman and his men found and kidnapped an elderly couple and four children for science. Because of the lack of immunity to European diseases Portman and his crew carried, the elderly couple died pretty quickly and the children were sickened. But the people were being held long enough for Portman to note their, quote, peculiarly idiotic expression of countenance and manner of behaving, end quote. Upon the children falling ill, Portman sent them back with gifts. There has been little contact the tribe has made with outsiders since, the occasional encounter, most of which have been hostile. Even during the 2004 tsunami, the Sentinelese were filmed taking aim with their bows and arrows at Indian rescue helicopters. They don't want to be bothered, and considering the history, it's easy to see why. Also, because of their isolation, they are not regularly exposed to the diseases we're exposed to just by existing outside of isolation, cold, flu, and other illnesses. And even if we don't display symptoms, we may be carriers for these illnesses. It's the kind of precautions you would have to think about when visiting someone who is immunocompromised. India has maintained a perimeter around North Sentinel Island that is illegal to cross to respect the desire of the Sentinelese people to be left alone and because, as a tribe with the history of so little contact with outsiders, exposure to other people can literally make them sick and kill them. So, Jay, the Sinhalese are afraid, so they defend their border. Why is that okay? But it's not okay for Trump and his supporters to want to defend our border from Central American migrants. The biggest difference is that the Sentinelese people's concerns are based in reality, but we can't say that for Trump and his supporters. Remember, the other tribes on the Andamans were decimated by outside contact. We don't know if they are aware of other tribes, and there appears to be little contact with them, but it's hard for me to believe that on some level they don't know about what happens when groups like themselves are contacted and then colonized. And you're hard-pressed to find a situation where contact isn't followed by colonization. European colonization of Native people groups, which often went hand-in-hand hand with missionary work, was once extremely common. Whether it's Native Americans, the Aztecs, the Mayans, and other people groups native to Central and South America, as well as Northern and Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, including Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, the resistance to outsiders from the Sentinelese is based on a real existential threat. The Trump Wall as well as the militarized response along the southern border and the tear gassing of migrants at the San Ysidro Port of Entry is not based in credible fear. Undocumented as well as documented immigrants are less likely to cause crime and be incarcerated than American citizens. This is according to both Pew Research and the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank. In addition, 
you are more likely to be victimized in a violent crime by someone of your same race or ethnicity than someone outside it. And that's even more the case when it comes to murder. So no, the fear of migrants who are attempting to legally seek asylum in the U.S. and are escaping problems in their native countries. This fear is based on propaganda and assumptions with little basis in reality. John Chow was from Vancouver, Washington, born in 1991, the son of a doctor who escaped China during the Cultural Revolution. Chow had a taste for adventure ever since reading the novel Robinson Crusoe as a child. He was also passionate about his evangelical Christian faith. After high school, he attended Oral Roberts University, a conservative Bible college centered on charismatic Christianity and the prosperity gospel. Over the next several years, he trained as an emergency medical technician and in sports medicine. In 2014, he was a volunteer for soccer programs in South Africa and Iraq. He spent three summers living in a cabin in California and survived being bitten by a rattlesnake. He had a real taste for adventure and evangelism, and missionary work would combine the two. In 2016, Chow became involved with All Nations, a missionary group out of Kansas City, Missouri. All Nations sends Christian missionaries to 40 countries. Even at that point, Chow felt drawn to visit North Sentinel Island and live among the isolated Sentinelese tribe. That year, he arrived in India using a tourist visa, since it's very difficult to obtain a missionary visa. And from 2016 through 2018, he took four trips to the Andaman Islands. He trained in scuba diving and took pictures of the creatures in the sea to post on Instagram. And he told friends he was on a reconnaissance mission. The last trip to the islands consisted of spending time learning how to circumvent military patrols. He knew that his undertaking was illegal. On November 14, he bribed some fishermen to take him on this illegal mission to finally go and visit the North Sentinel Islands to meet the Sentinelese people. So they went at night, and by sunup, he was at the island. According to the Washington Post, based on accounts from Chow's diary, quote, the women began looing and chattering, he wrote, and he was faced by men armed with bows and arrows. My name is John, I love you, and Jesus loves you, he shouted before retreating, end quote. The second day, he made it back to the island, and this time bearing gifts, including fish, scissors, cord, a football, and safety pins. According to the Post, quote, a man in white with a crown possibly made of flowers shouted at him. He responded by singing worship songs and hymns, and the tribe fell silent. A juvenile fired an arrow at him, piercing his waterproof Bible. Chow fled on foot through the mangroves. End quote. At this point, he wrote in his diary, quote, Lord, is this island Satan's last stronghold where none have heard or even had the chance to hear your name? End quote. It's a strange thing. Sometimes I wonder how people know they don't have long to live. And I'm not talking about people who have been diagnosed with terminal illnesses and are told by doctors they don't have long left. I'm talking about people who shouldn't be aware that their life is in any immediate danger, but somehow have that feeling, that gut feeling they get that this is it. 
where they try to get their affairs in order or begin to take special notice of the things and people who bring them joy because it may be the last time they get to enjoy them. On day three, Chow knew he was going to die. He wrote in his diary, quote, watching the sunset and it's beautiful, crying a bit, wondering if it will be the last sunset I see, end quote. He also wrote a letter to his parents, which said, quote, you guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God worshiping in their own language, as Revelation 7, 9-10 states. Soli Deo Gloria, all glory to God, end quote. Chow left the diary and letter with the fishermen and kayaked the rest of the way to the island. The next day, the fishermen said they observed the Sentinelese tribe dragging away and burying the body of 26-year-old John Allen Chow. This incident has been controversial, with several different takes on it, and a lot of the focus is on the legitimacy of missions work. When we think of Christian missionary work, we often think of a group of zealous evangelical Christians who travel to a country and culture vastly different from their own to proselytize, encourage them to convert to Christianity, teach them to become more modern or Western, and push these new adherents to abandon their own cultural practices as satanic. Missionary work historically has not been exclusive to evangelical Protestantism. It's been a feature in Roman Catholicism for centuries and mainline Protestant churches have been involved in missions too. The Black Church in the U.S. has had a history of missions work as well. For example, Northern Black churches ministering to the needs of free slaves in the South after the Civil War, and middle-class Black women who could not be ordained in their churches exercising their faith through the organization of missionary societies. So why do a lot of people hold a negative view of missions? Ed Stetzer, executive director of the Billy Graham Center and a dean at Wheaton College, makes the argument that many have a problem with the idea of missions in general. Quote, we have to start with the reality that this entire idea of sharing the gospel with the world is offensive to many. However, it is something that is central to the very words of Jesus, end quote. Stetzer does acknowledge that, quote, for many, missions is a story of heroes and gospel advance. For others, missions is a story of colonialism, genocide, triumphalism, and cross-cultural disasters, end quote. But he doesn't do much in either his piece in Christianity Today or in the Washington Post to address the latter list, and he fails to make a connection between any offense regarding missions work and the negatives that have legitimately come with missions work. And I think to downplay the latter is a mistake. Historically, missionary work has gone hand-in-hand hand with colonization. It has even been used to justify atrocities. For example, the missional purpose of spreading the gospel has been used to justify African slavery in the U.S. and decimation of Native American tribes. That these groups of people may have suffered, but they are better off being enslaved or being pushed off their land or dying from disease and attacked from white settlers than being left alone and not knowing the gospel. Stetzer goes on to say, quote, 
missions is now offensive to many people in the West, end quote. To be honest, this statement strikes me as similar to the argument that Muslims hate the West. Both of these takes are rooted in this view that history doesn't matter. How we got here didn't matter. And it's a narrative that lacks any effort at empathy and is kind of self-serving. Stetzer then goes on to say, quote, At the end of the day, I am among those that believe the world needs Jesus. I believe we are called to get the gospel to the ends of the earth and to every tribe. Many Christians need to really decide if they can say, I actually believe what is offensive to many today. I really believe that the world needs Jesus. And I am okay that you think me a fool for believing that. End quote. So proselytizing or spreading the gospel, including through missions work, has largely been seen as a non-negotiable in Christianity due to the Great Commission. But are unreached cultures doomed to remain, as John Chow wrote, Satan's last stronghold? While I was researching for this episode, I learned that the modern call to missions work, especially among evangelicals, is generally based in decision theology, the belief that Christians are saved from an eternity in hell by making a conscious decision to accept Jesus. Not knowing about Christ or Christianity, according to decision theology, and therefore not having the knowledge to convert to Christianity, would doom you to a life in hell. And it's sort of a problematic theology that opens the door to questions regarding people who do horrible things and accept Christ as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And on the other hand, unreached people groups, like presumably the Sentinelese tribe, and even children not old enough to make a decision. The idea of the latter group burning in hell tends to make evangelicals a little squeamish. And how children are addressed in terms of Christian salvation ranges from an age of accountability caveat, which isn't in the Bible but makes people worry less, to the belief that the unborn, as well as babies who die very young, go to hell, which is also not in the Bible but is a logical conclusion of decision theology. But it's not the only option for Christians. Christian author Rachel Held Evans talks about the idea of general divine revelation Using several passages from scripture, she says that God's love is universal and so is his grace, which is able to redeem humanity. God has determined where and when people are born, but he did not leave himself without a witness among any of the people, and Christ is present in every nation. He is there in the sick, impoverished, and imprisoned. And while God revealed himself through Christ, Christ does not limit or exhaust God's grace. She says, quote, throughout the Bible, The consistent theme concerning judgment is that of God separating the wicked from the righteous, not separating the elect from the non-elect or the Christians from the non-Christians. The focus is on justice, end quote. Over the years, I've tended to lean more in this direction, primarily because it seems cruel and sadistic for God to create humans and plop them somewhere just to let them burn in hell simply because they didn't get the Jesus memo. The Bible does talk about the just and merciful versus the unjust and wicked, and that has to count for something. On the incident that led to John Chow being killed by the Sentinelese tribe, I've thought about this a lot, and I honestly had mixed feelings. On the Sentinelese, I'm a bit more definite, considering the sparse but troubling history of their outsider encounters and the fate of similar tribes who encountered outsiders. 
What they did was self-preservation. It's tragic that a young man died, but I get where they're coming from. On missions, I think that if you are welcomed and people are receptive, missions can be fulfilling for a lot of Christians, and it can be a positive thing. It's even in the Gospels that disciples were to go where they were welcomed and where they weren't to shake the dust from their feet and move on. So I'm not anti-missions. But we need to take very seriously that all too often, both historically and even now, missions comes with a lot of baggage. It's hard to divorce your faith from your culture, and Christianity, as well as other faiths, are syncretic. Faith is often practiced with cultural customs and hang-ups. The adoption of the Christmas holiday, which is coming up soon, was based on the pagan holiday Saturnalia. This is one example, as is the focus in the evangelical church on regulating sex, which has very little basis in the Bible. And even though we're not in the heyday of colonization, on missions trips, these cultural hang-ups often get passed to those who are targeted by the mission as gospel. And people lose their culture to become more like the missionaries that are also bringing them the gospel. The evangelical church in particular is having a very hard time divorcing culture, specifically American individualism and the hyper-focus on obeying white male authority, divorcing culture from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of the extensive and complicated history of missionary work, the colonization of the past, and even the corporate encroachment on land and people groups today. That's why people are uneasy about it. It's not simply a knee-jerk negative reaction of missions without context. It's also quite clear that evangelical Christianity, especially in the United States, has a lot of things they need to answer for and that they have to deal with in-house before going out on the missions field and telling others they have all the answers. I think John Chow potentially went into this endeavor naive. He couldn't speak their language, and he brought a football, but he knew the tribe had a reputation for killing outsiders. Chow wasn't the first. I also believe he was sincere in his beliefs, and he felt called to live among the people of North Sentinel Island. But you can be sincere and also be sincerely wrong. How was he going to teach them the gospel if he didn't know the language? How did he even know they are unsaved. They did have sporadic contact with the outside world. And even if they never learned about Christianity, who's to say them not knowing about the Christian faith would doom them to Satan's clutches? I wonder if he ever considered that his mere presence on the island could kill its inhabitants, even though Chow was probably not sick. As a potential carrier of illness, as many of us are, it would endanger the lives of the Sentinelese people whose isolation means no antibodies against certain illnesses that we take for granted. And as they still have his body, disease is still a potential problem. Did Chow just not think of that? Or did he just figure that it's better they know the gospel and then die off than remain alive but not learn about Christ? Either way is a bit inconsiderate. We'll never know, though, and I don't want to think the worst of someone who can no longer answer for himself. Even though Chow was trying to do what he felt was the right thing according to his faith and theology, having good intentions isn't always enough. His actions lacked mindfulness. And even though conservative evangelicals like Ed Stetzer argue that Chow could have done things a little differently, but he supports his decision, it bothers me that there seems to be little consideration given to those who helped him. 
Remember, what Chow did was illegal. Those who helped him were arrested, including five fishermen, a local guide, and one of his friends. I can appreciate that he wrote that he fully understood what he was doing and at some point realized he would likely die. But his decision brought others down with him who didn't ask to be in that situation. Surely people who are trying to provide for their own families. Something about that doesn't sit right with me. I'm not sure if John Chow Mentwell is going to fix this for everyone left behind. The Sentinelese people exposed to bacteria with no immunity. The people who helped him who are being punished for his choices. Not to mention his family and friends who no longer have him around. All I can say for certain is that it's sad. If you've listened to Potstar Podcast for a long time, you'll know that I'm pro-Second Amendment, but open the listening to people who support stricter gun control laws, and I have some major problems with the National Rifle Association for a myriad of reasons. If you're interested in learning more about the NRA, and yes, yes you do, check out the most recent episode of Stranger Still. Nick and John go into the NRA in more depth. Why does the NRA even exist? Listen to Stranger Still on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and most other podcatchers, or go to their website at strangerstillshow.com. And for all the awesome and entertaining shows on the Flying Machine Network, go to flyingmachine.network slash shows. Thanks so much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Android. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and links are right there. If you subscribe, you can get new episodes once they come out so there's no delay. As always, I want to hear from you. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. And check out the Potstir Podcast Facebook page at facebook.com slash Podcast, and also join the group. You can go to the Facebook page and you can find the group as well. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.